ways, but the primary way in which we communicate is with our words, through our uh, verbal speech. And, uh, you know, I, there, there was a study um, that somebody smart, scientist, somebody somewhere did one time that estimates that uh, men speak about 25,000 words a day. And women speak about 75,000 words a day with gusts up to 150,000, all right? And so I always, I, I always remind my wife of that, especially on Sundays, because I'm like, you know, I used all my words this morning, honey, so I'm not going to speak the rest of the day, you know? But anyway, no, we, we communicate primarily through our words. Certainly there's nonverbal communication. We communicate through our actions, all those kind of things. But we primarily communicate through our words. And some of the most powerful, some of those meaningful words that we can ever speak or that are ever spoken to us are promises, right? Promises. Promises can be encouraging to us. Promises uh, can comfort us. Uh, promises give us hope. And certainly there's the follow through. Obviously, uh, you know, someone has to follow up those words with actions to keep those promises uh, but promises are just some of the most special words that can ever be spoken to us. And I don't know if you have recognized the theme, the thread of promises through the songs that we've sung this morning. That's intentional because this morning we're going to look at one of the most important promises that we find in God's Word. And so take your Bibles and turn with the Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, you have the YouVersion Bible app downloaded on your smart device. Uh, open that up, click on uh, events, search for North Point, my message notes, and our text that we're going to be looking at here this morning will be there for you as well if you prefer uh, that method. But we're going to be talking about promises this morning, and as you're turning there, let me just kind of uh, give you a little bit of background. So we're in this series that we're calling Meta Narrative, and a Meta Narrative is a grand story. And what we're doing throughout this year is we're going to be walking through some of those important um, stories in the Bible, some of the most important events in the Bible. We're going to be uh, interacting with some of those important characters in the Bible in a chronological way. And, and our purpose in doing this is not only to get us all to dive into God's Word and, and, and read it from cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation, but also to help us to get to see that there is one primary theme all throughout Scripture, and that is God's redemptive story. And at the center of God's redemptive story is Jesus Christ. All the way from Genesis chapter 1, all the way to Revelation 22, the central theme and the central, central character of the story is Jesus. Everything is about him. Everything is preparing us for him. Everything is pointing us to him and the salvation, the redemption that he's going to bring. And today is going to be no exception to that. And so what's going to happen here is we transition from Genesis 11 to Genesis 12 is a little bit of a transition takes place. Genesis 1 through 11 is kind of this... Um, you know, kind of Moses is kind of catching us up on the early history of creation and, and the early history of, of what God did at the very beginning. And now we're going to be kind of picking up the story of God and his people. And here's where we're really going to begin to see um, this, this, 
this thread, this line of redemption uh, as, as God begins to call a people and create a people and prepare his people for the coming of the eventual Messiah. And so Genesis chapter 12 kind of serves as this transition from 11 through, uh, 1 through 11 and 12 through 50, the rest of Genesis and throughout the rest of the Bible. So Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, and I just apologize in advance. I'm going to go back and forth between Abram and Abraham. It's just going to happen, okay? Uh, but anyway, eventually Abram's name is changed to Abraham when he becomes the father of a great nation, okay? Of many people. From your country, you go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife, Sarah. Sarah, excuse me, again, I'm going to mess that one up too, because eventually God changes her name to Sarah too. Anyway, that's another day, for another story for another day, all right? He took Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out from the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. So here's the, here's the main thing I want us to see here at the beginning of Genesis chapter 12, and that is that God is a promise maker. God is a promise maker. We already saw that. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, when we looked at the story of Noah and the great flood and God covenants, he makes a promise with Abraham, he makes a promise with humanity that he will never flood the entire earth again, and he gives the sign of that covenant, the sign of that promise is the rainbow, right? So we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. And so we've already seen God making promises. And again, what we'll see here in our story today is God making this major promise, not only to Abraham, but, but really to um, the, the rest of humanity, because it will eventually affect all of us, uh, even those of us that are here today. Uh, and when you look at Scripture, um, it, you see this pattern all throughout Scripture that God makes promises, God makes promises, God makes promises, God makes promises. It depends on who you look at, who you ask, as to how many promises there are in Scripture. But there are over 3,000 promises that are made in Scripture. God is a God of promise. He makes promises. And I want you to notice the, the specific, not the Pacific, the specific promise I, hey, I lost sleep last night just like you did, okay? And so I'm, I'm suffering as a result of that as well, okay? Uh, but uh, the specifics to this promise that God makes to Abraham, and he promises him three things. And they're really all attached to the land, right? So if we go back and we look at this, uh, verse 1, it says, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. And so these promises are all connected to the land. And so he makes three promises to Abram. The first one is that he will be a great nation. So he will become the father of a great people. Okay. 
And you really can't have a nation without having land. And so you can see how this is connected to the land. He promises to make him a great name. And this is not for Abram's sake. This is not so Abram can walk around and go, you know, I'm great. I'm the greatest. You know, this is no Muhammad Ali, all right? He's not saying I am the greatest. Uh, This is for God's glory that God's going to make Abram's name great. And we'll talk about how that happens. And then he promises him the third thing, a great blessing. A great blessing. So God promises to not only bless Abram, but he also promises that through the blessing that he's going to bring to Abram and his family and his line, that Abram and his entire family and generations after him are going to be a blessing to the whole world, to all the peoples in the world. So I want you to notice that God is blessing Abram so that he will then in turn be a blessing to others. And he's setting up this divine pattern uh, that I believe that he wants all of us to live out, all of us to fulfill. The reason why God blesses us is so that we will be a blessing to other people. We see that lived out in the life of Abram and the promise that God makes to him. But before we move on, I want you to also notice the stark contrast between Genesis chapter 11 and Genesis chapter 12. So Genesis chapter 11, we talked about this last week, the Tower of Babel. Right? Uh, And so this is mankind, humanity, trying to make a great name for themselves. Resisting, uh, rejecting God's command and trying to bring glory to themselves and not to him. But what's happening in this passage? I want you to notice the, the stark contrast here. There, in our passage last week, Genesis 11, God commanded them to scatter and they would not. But what's happening here in this passage? Abram goes when God says to go. There, last week in Genesis chapter 11, they wanted to build, through human effort and prideful self-interest, a great city, make a great name for themselves, and be a blessing unto themselves. But here, what do we see? God promises to do these things apart from human effort and for his own glory. One of the very reasons I believe that God places Genesis 11, Tower of Babel, and then Genesis 12, the calling of Abram, is to show us the stark contrast between what happens when human beings try to do things on their own and what God can do apart from the help of any human being whatsoever in any human effort. All right? Absolutely amazing, the stark contrast here. Didn't want us to miss that before we move on. All right, so let's move on. Let's go to Genesis chapter 15. And we're going to pick up um, some more vital pieces to this promise that God makes to Abram. Genesis chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. It says, After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, this man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up to the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. 
Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Can you put yourself in Abram's shoes for just a moment? I know because we live here in the city, we don't get to see the stars very well. But man, when you go out into the country, you know, maybe you've gone out and you've been camping out in the middle of nowhere. And, and it's, it's, a, it's a moonless night, you know, there's no full moon. It's a moonless night, but it's as clear as can be. And all of a sudden, it's like, man, where have all those stars been all my life, you know? It's absolutely amazing. You just look into the heavens and you see God's handiwork. You see his power on display. And and God calls him outside and he says, Abram, I want you to look up here. I know you're kind of struggling with how this is going to happen right now, but I want you to look up into the night sky and you see all those stars up there. Yes, God, I see them all. Man, there's no way I can count them all. I know you said to count them, but there's no way I can count all these. Well, that's how many your descendants are going to be because what am I going to do? Man, can you, can you imagine Abram and, and what he's thinking at that moment? God, man, you're awesome. <laughs> I don't know how you're going to do this, but, but that's absolutely incredible. Man, that blows my mind. Verse 7, he said to him, I am the Lord. This is the Yahweh, the divine name. I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? I want us to stop right there for just a moment because there's something really important I want us to get here. What we learn here in these first eight verses of chapter 15 is a, a very important lesson for all of us here. And that is that faith does not mean the absence of questions. Having faith in God does not mean that we don't have questions. Abram, as we're going to see here in just a moment, is the man of faith. Throughout scripture, he is lifted up as the example of what it looks like to be a person of faith. And so it's not that he doesn't have faith in God, but he's struggling with how God's going to do this. I mean, notice his questions. Uh, Verse 2, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? So God's promise that he's going to make him the father of a great nation, right? Well, in order to be a father of a great nation, he's got to have a son. And he doesn't have one yet. And so he's struggling with, man, how are you going to make me the father of a great nation, God? I know you promised me this, but I don't know how you're going to do it. I'm childless. I don't have a son right now. And not only that, God promises him, I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to give it to you, okay? You're going to have to work for it. You're going to have to earn it. I'm going to give it to you. And and Abram's like, again, man, that's great, God, but I don't know how you're going to do it. Like, how are you going to give me this land? I'm one person with a small family. How in the world are you going to give me possession of this land? So faith in God does not mean that we don't have questions. It doesn't mean that we don't have doubts. It doesn't mean uh, that we don't have fears. That's not what faith means. I think sometimes we fall into the trap of thinking, man, if I have doubts and I have little faith, Or if I have fears, then I have little weak faith. And that's not the case. Abram has strong faith in God, but he still has questions. He still has some doubts. He still has some fears. As you read through the story of the rest of his life. 
So I want you to understand, man, this is important. If you are here this morning, and because of circumstances in your life, somehow you, you have some doubts, or you have some questions, or you have some fears about things that are happening in your life, that doesn't mean that you don't love God. That doesn't mean that you don't trust God. That doesn't mean that you don't have faith in God. And Abram shows us that. He demonstrates that for us. Let's keep reading. Verse 9. What happens next? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. The, the birds of prey came on the carcasses, but Abram, Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation that ser they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot and a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land, from the wadi of Egypt to the great river the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, Jebusites and every other ite you can possibly think of. Are you getting the picture, okay? He's like, you're going to have the land of all of these people, okay? I'm going to give this to your descendants. So here we learn another uh, vital, vital piece of our understanding uh, about faith. And that is that faith does not mean that you trust, faith does mean that you trust in who God is, and what he is capable of doing. In other words, you trust his character and his power. You trust his character and his power. What does that mean? Well, throughout scripture, God's character is revealed for us. And some of the things that we're going to learn is that God is faithful and that he is true. He is trustworthy. And so when he makes a promise, he's going to fulfill it. And so we trust his character when he makes us a promise. But we also trust his capabilities, what he is able to do. And what we also learn in scripture is that literally nothing is impossible for our God. Nothing is impossible for him. The circumstance that you find yourself in is not impossible for God to overcome. The doubts and the fears that you may have are not impossible for God to overcome. There is nothing stronger, there is no one stronger than our God. And so faith means trusting in who God is and what he is able to do. And in verse 6, we find the definition of faith both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So if we go back to verse 6, what does it say? Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. 
This is the definition of faith throughout the rest of Scripture. This is it. And so how do we, we kind of break this down? If faith means trusting in who God is and trusting in what he is capable of doing, what he's able to do, then how do we break this down? Well, here's what we see in this one verse. We believe in and we trust in God, and that's what it means to place our faith in him. Abram believed, he trusted in God. He didn't have all the answers, he had some doubts, he had some fears, but he trusted in who God is and what he was able to do. We believe in what he is capable of doing. And what is he capable of doing? Well, on this side of the cross, he is able to save us from our sins through Jesus. This is what it means to trust in God. We trust in who he is. Jesus is God. We trust in who he is. But we also trust in what God is able to do through him, and that's to save us, you and me, from our sins. And God is able to credit Jesus' work done on our behalf to us as righteousness. The whole reason why God sent Jesus in the first place was to live the perfect sinless life that you and I could not live because we had already blown it. So he sends Jesus to live that perfect sinless life in our place and die a substitutionary death in our place. And when we trust by faith in what Jesus Christ has done for us, what God the Father does is he applies Jesus' perfect life to us. And he credits the righteous life that Jesus lived and the righteousness that he acquired on the cross for us. And he applies it to us as if we had always lived a perfect, sinless, righteous life. That's what faith looks like. And so this passage tells us something incredibly important about faith. That faith is believing in God, and God in turn credits that to us as righteousness. He sees us as righteous, even though we know that we are not. Even though we blow it every single day of our lives. We know we're not righteous. We know it in our hearts. But nevertheless, when we trust by faith in what Jesus has done for us, when God looks at us, he sees us as righteous. And it's one of those mind-blowing concepts, kind of like the Trinity. But this is what Scripture teaches us. And this is what we learn about faith. But here's what else we learn about the promise and God's faithfulness. That God's promise is not dependent upon our faithfulness to Him, but His commitment to us. God's promise to Abram is not based on Abram's faithfulness to God, but God's commitment to making the promise happen and be fulfilled in Abram's life, in your life, in my life. So how do we know that? Well, I want you to notice this this really strange thing that God tells him to do, right? So he tells him to go and, and get these animals, and he, I know this is really gross, it's bloody, okay, but this is the Old Testament, all right? And, and so uh, he tells him to take these animals and to divide them, into, like cut them in half, okay? Divide each of them in two uh, and then lay them out opposite of one another. What in the world is this? 
Well, Abram knows what it is because he doesn't say, okay, God, what are you talking about? What am I supposed to do? What does this have to do with anything? He knows what this is. He knows that God is about to make a covenant. God is about to make a contract, if you will, with Abram. Here's an illustration to kind of help us to understand this. So we, we live in a written culture, right? Uh, we live in a culture where, you know, if you're agreeing to something, you're entering into a contract with someone, uh, then there's some paper that's going to be involved and some signatures that are going to be involved because we live in a written culture. So, for example, you know, we, we, uh, we're about to break ground on our brand new student expansion. So excited about that. Sunday, March the 24th will be our official groundbreaking ceremony. Uh, we will have that immediately after the morning worship service. It won't take long. We'll go back here and, and, you know, and, uh, and kind of have that ceremony and kind of signifying the kickoff, the start of this expansion that we've been looking forward to for a long time now. It's finally happening, and so we're so excited about being there. But here, here's, here's what, we, what we did to kind of get this whole process started. So we, we call an architect, right? And, and we hired this architect to make these plans, architectural drawings and plans for us. They're going to pass the city's permitting process. And, and, and we enter into a contract with him. And he says, I'm going to do this. And we're going to pay him X number of dollars to, to do the work, right? And, and so we signed a paper. You know, we signed several papers on behalf of the church uh, entering into a contract agreement with the architect. We did the same thing with our construction project manager who's going to oversee the entire construction process. Uh, he agreed to do these things. We agreed to pay him X number of dollars, and we both signed a contract, and that contract binds us together. It's like a promise that we're making to one another, and not only does it stipulate what we're going to do, but it also stipulates what's going to happen if we don't pay or he doesn't do the work that we're paying him to do, right? What happens if the covenant, if the contract is not fulfilled? All those things are written into that. But the culture back then wasn't a written culture. It was an oral culture. And so what we see taking place here is a typical contractual covenant ceremony that would take place between two individuals or two parties back in the ancient Near East. And I want you to notice that both of the animals, so once they were cut, so if you can just imagine, you know, Abram's cut the animals in two, and he places a half here and a half here, and he places a half here and a half here, and he places a half here and a half here, and it almost creates this kind of pathway um, for someone to walk through or for people to walk through. And in fact, that's exactly what would happen. One party, once those halves were laid out, one party would walk through the middle of those halves that were laid out, in essence saying, I am binding myself to you in this covenant, in this contract, in this promise, and if I don't fulfill my end of the contract, if I break the contract somehow, and I don't fulfill the obligations of the contract, may I be like these pieces of this animal, may I be cut in half, may I be just as dead as they are. I mean, this is serious stuff, and this is what they would do back in the ancient Near East. But there are two amazing things that happen in this particular 
uh, covenant ceremony that we see taking place between Abram and between God. Two things that normally would not happen. And so what are those? Well, the first stunning thing that we see is who passes between the pieces. So the story tells us, the text tells us that Abram falls asleep, right? And then it says something strange about a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch that appear and walk between the pieces. Well, what in the world are these two things? Well, interestingly enough, these are the same two words used to describe the billowing smoke and the fiery blaze of the cloud that comes down over Mount Sinai when God gives Moses and his people the Ten Commandments. Maybe you read that in your readings this week, if y'all are kind of on that week. Uh, but nevertheless, that, that's exactly what happens. The same two words, the same description of, of what happened there on Mount Sinai. But it's also the same words, the same two words, the same uh, description of the cloud that led the, the Israelites by day in the Exodus and the, the pillar of fire that led them by night during the Exodus. Same two words. So, so what are we to make of this? Very simply put, this is God. This is God. God is walking through the pieces. God is making this covenant with Abram. In essence, he's putting himself on the hook is what God is doing here. I love what Timothy Keller says about this. He says, this is God saying, Abram, do you want to know how you can know that these, are gonna, these things are going to come true, this promise is going to come true? Do you want to know about who I am? If I don't bless you, may my immortality suffer mortality. May my immutability suffer mutability. May my in infinitude suffer finitude. May the impossible become possible. May I be cut off. May I be cut up. May I die. This is what God is saying in walking through the pieces in this covenant ceremony with Abram. God is putting himself on the hook. But there's another st startling thing that happens here, and that is who doesn't go through the pieces. You see, normally when the pieces were laid out, one person would walk through the pieces and then the other person would walk through the pieces because this was a two-way agreement. This was two parties or two people that were agreeing to fulfill the contract, fulfill the covenant. And so both parties would pass through it and in essence say, I'm going to keep my part of the bargain. I'm going to keep my part of the contract. And if I don't, may I end up just like these dead animals right here. But notice who doesn't pass through the pieces. Abram doesn't pass through the pieces. Why is that so significant? Because God, in essence, is saying, Abram, I will bless you. No matter whether I fail, I will pay the penalty. No matter whether you fail, I will pay the penalty. I will make myself accountable to pay the penalty should you fail. I will absorb the cost for either of us, including you. You see, God's, God's promises to you are not based upon your faithfulness to him. This promise to Abram has nothing to do with Abram. It has everything to do with God. 
It's not based upon Abram living a sinless, righteous, holy life. He's already blown it. He can't live a sinless life. Uh, he can try with God's help to, to live holy and live righteous, but he's already blown it. It's not dependent upon him. It's dependent upon God. God will make good on this promise. He will fulfill this promise at cost to himself. Here's the encouraging thing about this. And every single one of us here in this room, we have utterly blown it hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. You and I, we know that we are filled with sin. We don't go a day without sinning. We know that we are not righteous. We know that we are not holy. And yet sometimes I think that we can fall into the trap of believing that God's promise to us are dependent upon our faithfulness to him. And nothing could be further from the truth. God's promises to us are not dependent upon our faithfulness to him. He knows how human we are. He knows how fallen we are. He knows how sinful we are. His promises are based upon who he is and what he is able to do. But how can this be? How can God how can God promise us things that are not dependent upon our faithfulness to him, but his commitment to us? How can he do this? How can he fulfill this promise and every other promise he's ever made to us? Well, the answer, of course, is Jesus. You see, the ultimate fulfillment of the promise to Abram is Jesus. You see, God would create a people. First promise that God makes to him. I'm going I'm to make you into a great nation. I'm going to make you into a great people. You're going to be the father of a great people. And so God would create a people known as the nation of Israel and then eventually the church. That's you and me. Did you realize we are God's fulfillment of God's promise? Part of God's fulfillment to God's promise he made to Abram? We are. We're evidence of it. Today, right now, right now, here. What else did he promise him? He promised he would make his name great, right? Well, how did that happen? God would make the name of Abraham great. He would be the example of faith for the rest of history. He would be the example of faith. Not the only example, but the primary example of someone who trusted God and it was credited to him or her as righteousness. But how would God bless all the peoples on earth? How did he accomplish that? By sending Jesus, who would be born a Jew. But that alone ultimately would not fulfill the promise that, Ab that God made to Abram that day. You see, because of human sinfulness, we weren't able to keep God's laws. We're eventually, we're going to get to the time where God establishes his laws and he gives his laws to the people. The Ten Commandments are just part of the many laws that God gives to his people. But here's the problem, and God knew this from the very beginning, that because of the sinfulness in our hearts, we would not be able to keep those laws. That we would break them as soon as God gave them to us. That we would break them. And that's why he sent Jesus. 
So Jesus came as a Jew, but also lived a perfect, sinless life, keeping every single command found in the law, which we could not do for ourselves. But remember, God promised to take the penalty upon himself if man broke the covenant. So even though Jesus lived perfectly, he gave his life as our substitute, thereby providing the way for this promise of God to ultimately be fulfilled. I told you everything in Scripture is about Jesus, right? Are you seeing it? The Apostle Paul, a few thousand years later, would say this. Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 through 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. You see, God ultimately fulfills this promise to Abraham in his son, Jesus Christ. In every single way possible, he fulfills it through Jesus. And this is why it's one of the most important promises that we see in Scripture Because the ultimate fulfillment of it is Jesus himself. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much that you are a God who not only makes promises, but you're a God who fulfills every single promise that you make. God, thank you for the example of faith that Abraham is to all of us. And God, thank you that through faith in your son Jesus, that you bring us into your family, that you save us from our sins, that, that you give us the promise of eternal life in a heaven that you will establish for eternity, thereby giving us our eternal promised land. God, thank you for sending your son Jesus to live that perfect sinless life that we could not so that we could be seen as righteous. So that we could be made righteous because of what Jesus Christ did for us. God, thank you for your promises, and thank you for your faithfulness to them and your commitment to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, as we kind of enter into a response time, I just kind of want to ask you some questions that I want us to kind of think about and contemplate um, as we uh, respond to what the Lord has said to us through his word today. Maybe you're here this morning and you are struggling to trust in God. My encouragement, my challenge to you this morning, my question to you this morning is, would you trust in who God is? That he is faithful, that he is trustworthy, uh, that he is merciful and gracious? Would you trust in who God is? And would you trust in what he is able to do? Literally everything. There is nothing that's impossible for our God. 
And so let me ask you this. Are you trusting in God for your salvation this morning? Are you trusting in who he is, Savior, Redeemer? Are you trusting in what he's able to do In fact, what he's already done through Jesus Christ and what he's able to do in your life through what Jesus has done, and that's to save you from your sins. Have you trusted in him for your salvation? Are you currently trusting in him? Regardless of the circumstance that you find yourself in right now, are you trusting in who he is and what he is able to do for you?